Hello and welcome to episode 17 of That 60s Recording Podcast, the podcast that has conversations inspired by the golden era of recording. Um, so we're approaching Christmas here and lockdown has finally lifted or some form of lockdown has finally lifted. I hope that you uh, enjoyed the last episode with Jerry Hammock talking about his uh, book, uh, which is the Beatles Recording Reference Manual, Volume 5. And we have more from that conversation coming up today. And before we dive in, I just want to, I mean, I, I do say this a lot, but the podcast just keeps growing. The I use Podbean to distribute this podcast and the percentage increase of listeners is growing every episode and it, it just absolutely astounds me. I didn't think for a second that I would have this many. I thought it would be good if I had 50 listeners per podcast um, but, you know, we're well over 500 in every two weeks. Uh, I'm getting that brand new amount of, uh, not brand new amount of listeners, but the uh, brand new listens to each podcast. So, yeah, I really, really appreciate you all supporting me. Um, well, you're not supporting me. I really all appreciate you listening uh, to this podcast. And please keep spreading the word and sharing it. And if you're enjoying it, please take the time to leave a review. You don't have to write anything. You just put a five-star review or whatever you want on iTunes. Don't think you can do it on Spotify. Um, but every little helps. Every little thing like that helps uh, grow the podcast and um, hopefully spread the word about uh, what we're trying to do here. Okay, so we'll get back into this conversation. Here we go. Jerry Hammock, part two. I'd love to speak a bit about the your sort of research process um, in, into this kind of stuff and how, well, first of all, your research process must have differed um as you've gone on but how did it change from this modern era that we've just been discussing say modern era the the later era of of beatles work compared to the sort of a very early recordings when they were just on four track well the four track work is much easier to to decipher it's much easier to to understand what what you know, how the songs were coming together the songs were very you know were were, were more basic pop tunes. They were the arrangements were more compact. Uh, the recording technology easier to you know easier to understand, and the documentation was pretty complete. Uh, so that that helped a lot. You know to be able to to pull the puzzle pieces together. Uh, the the entire process involved uh, uh, first it involved understanding uh, the studios. So, uh, so what did EMI Studios look like in any one year of work? Uh, had they introduced new gear? You know, so what was the gear going into 1964 that was in the studio? And then was any of that gear exclusive to any one studio in any one of the rooms in the studio? So, uh, so in the case of consoles, that you know that that's the case. The there's a red there was a red thirty seven board in Studio One and red fifty one boards in Studio Two and uh, Two and Three. So those are different consoles, and they behave differently. And you and they behave differently. Um, uh, what kind of outboard gear was in play? When did it come into the studio? When you know you when was when was it accessible? Uh, or when, and then when did we know that the engineers started to employ it on Beatles sessions? So that was the first thing to understand was the, uh, how any of these studios was put together. Uh, and, and, 
and how the rooms were used. Uh, with, with EMI, they had a Siemens uh, patch bay system. So they could, if they chose to, access gear from all over, this, all over the, the complex. But typically, they kind of made, uh, they made do with what was in the rooms. In any one room, they would get, as they were setting up for a session, the engineers would call for, you know, I need an Alltech compressor. I need the Alltech compressors, and I need a Fairchild limiter, um, and and I want the pop filter plugged into the console. I want uh, an RS one twenty seven, and and give me an eight K, you know, external EQ. So they'd specify that for you know for a, a particular session. So again, if you understood how the room was put, you know, put together, that was the first step. The next step was how the engineer assigned to the session worked with any particular recording. What was their preferences? Um, Norman Smith, when he, the, the earliest lead engineer for the, called a balance engineer for the Beatles, um, for the early recordings for the you know, Please Please Me and, and with the Beatles, uh, his recording technique was to... Um, uh, in order to get differentiation, which is difficult in mono, if you under, if if your listeners know the difference between a mono recording and a stereo recording, with a mono recording, all the sounds coming from one point, and the only thing you've got to play with uh, psychoacoustically is depth. Is the only thing you don't have width to play with. You only have depth because everything's coming from one one direction. Mm-hmm. So in order to differentiate for the purpose of depth, what he did was he used different microphone types for the for the cabinets. Uh, that that and they had slightly different EQ curves. A darker EQ is going to uh, is going to make something sound like it's a little bit further away. So that way you could place uh, one guitar that's a little bit sharper sounds like it's a little bit more forward. A little darker guitar sounds like it's a little bit further back. All of a sudden, I've created depth in that. Mm-hmm. That was one of his. That was one of his techniques that that he used. The other thing that he did to create a lot to gain a live sound was he didn't use any what are called gobos or or baffles between uh, guitar cabinets. So everything was very live in the room. You're getting a lot of mic bleed. The last thing that he did was he used a U47 uh, Neumann U47 microphone in Omni position as a room microphone. So he would bleed, actually, you know, the sound of of the band in the room playing together. You know, you put those three components together, and you have what turns out to be a very live recording. So when Norman Smith is engineering a recording, you know that now I'm going to have different mics on the guitar cabinets. And the, the microphone selections back then, you knew for a guitar that they were using the modified U47s called, there were U48s, or U47s that had modified two U48 patterns. They were using Neumann KM54s and KM56s. Those were their like kind of go-to cabinet microphones. Um, so those are in play. I know I've got a U48 or a U47 and Omni in the room. Um, again, I know the engineer. I know his mic preferences. That tells me how the session was recorded. Fantastic! Um, it's so uh, you're you're intimately getting to know the styles of of each of the personnel involved in in every session. Yeah, um, uh, you know, as you move to Emmerich as a, Emmerich as an engineer, you know, now he's learned everything he could learn from Norman Smith, 
<clears throat> for a while, he just mimics Norman Smith's work, but then he starts adding more microphones to the drum kit. Uh, in Pepper, he starts miking under the kit. Um, uh, come the White Album, he starts doing above and below snare microphones. Um, come Abbey Road, he's got seven tracks going to the console uh, of, of drums. So, yeah, you, so that's the second step, is who's the balance engineer and what are their preferences in working with gear? Um, Ken Scott loved the U67s. So, um, so bass recording under Ken Scott's going to use a U67. Bass recording under Emmerich is going to use a AKG C12. <laughs> so, and all of these things make a difference to the to the to the tone. Yes. Yeah. Um, do you know? Do they do they like direct injection? Don't they like direct injection? Um, all you, those. That's the next level of understanding it. Then there is. Um, what format are they working on? Twin, you know, mono, twin track, four track, eight track. Uh, understanding that now you now there is going to be an allocation of performances that has to happen <laughs> in order for you to get to the back end stereo recording you hear. So, a lot of my detective work ended up being taking the uh, the needle drop stereo masters. So era specific. I'm not talking. So none of the you know of the Giles Martin stuff that was that that's modern, but um, uh, versions that were contemporary with the Beatles. You know the 1967 stereo release of Pepper, um, and using that and then backing into the finished recording from from any sort of evidence I had from audio takes of what happened, and I would know that they recorded the backing track on day one. And it took up takes, you know, tracks one, two, and three. And then they added an overdub of, let's say, bass, because McCartney liked to record his bass on his own. Now that four tracks full. And I see by Barrett's notes and Lewison's notes that there was a tape reduction remix that was made. So now I collapse those. But do I collapse them to one track and have three open tracks or two tracks and only have two open tracks? So I go back to the stereo. Are the elements that I heard that I know were in the backing track are they only in one place of the pan, or they are are they in two different places? That tells me something. Yeah. So, you know, that's that that's the detective work that goes into it too, either additively or subtractively, to to figure out what was done in what order and and how it came together to the final mixes that we hear. I absolutely love it. It's it's so fascinating hearing you talking about it, um, and so the when you look at the books, they they're so intricately detailed that you you, you know it's it's fun to hear you demystify the process slightly, and uh, <laughs> and now I'm just in awe of the amount of work that you've you've put into. It. I mean, I obviously knew that they would have had a huge amount of work, but it's it's amazing. It's absolutely incredible. Yeah, there's no, you know, there was no real, there's no real mystery to it. And, and anybody that, that gets the books, you'll see that I completely explain my methodology. I'm not hiding, you know, there's, 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 you know, no great and powerful Oz behind the curtain anywhere. It's, <laughs> it's, it's the way that I did the work. I try to explain completely what my rationale is, what my, um, uh, what my filters were and and frankly, I, I, I try to make very plain that if I don't know, I'm going to tell you. 
if I don't know how it was done and it, and it, and there isn't information that would pass, you know, what I would call reasonable academic rigor, you know, that you can trust that this is true, then I'm going to tell you we don't know. I'll tell you what we, I'll tell you what the, the suppositions are. I'll tell you what people believe happened, but I'm not going to say, and this is what happened <laughs> unless I know that that's what happened. Yes. Um, and that goes for the recording techniques. It goes for who played what on, on things. Um, uh, you know, one of the, one of the criticisms I had from the book is, is where I don't tell people in a number of instances, like who played the lead guitar part on some of the early stuff, you know, was that John or was that George? And in a lot of cases we, we, you know, you just don't know. We know that there was a solo played. Um, some people contend that, that there's a, that, that Lennon had made a statement that if it's a Chuck Berry song, I played the solo. Except roll over Beethoven, did he play <laughs> the solo? Yeah, you know, and and so um, you know, unless there is you know evidence that we know of, and the evidence can come from other places, like um, like Lennon does play the lead guitar lines for "I Feel Fine." That all that boom bump 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 bump. He's the he, that's Lennon. Yeah playing it and we know that not only because Lennon told us it but there's live performance footage of him playing those lines yes yeah and and he's not going to learn them to play them live <laughs> it's just not in the way the guy was cut no <laughs> so uh so again uh, uh i really try to uh I've, I've really tried to make very plain what my thought what my what my filtering process was to come to the conclusions that I've come, uh, come to in, in the books. So nothing's hidden. Uh, the books have full bibliographies. Every, uh, every external source that I reference to come to my conclusions and bring, these, and bring these stories together is there. You can go down the same rabbit hole if you want to. <laughs> and you know, if you go down that rabbit hole and you find a different conclusion, let me know. Um, <laughs> you know let, let me know. I, I'd, I'd like to hear it. How well documented were the sessions at the time, sort of spanning the whole of of the the sort of recording era? I know from my experience at modern day EMI, they even now take fairly rigorous notes on the equipment that's being used, and and the engineers still do need to request certain things to be in play for a session. I. In, perhaps in my naivety, I imagine that they were very well documented at the beginning of the recording career. And then as they began, the sessions got longer and um, perhaps more chaotic. It got more difficult to, to document what was happening. Well, specifically what happened is, is a little bit harder to document than, than, than what the setups were. So as, as you noted, uh, the practice at EMI was, and apparently still is to a degree, that the, the engineer on the session has to make a request to the studio for the kind of gear that they want. And in the case of the Beatles, they would, there was a, what was called a recording sheet was generated for each session. So before the session, it would be, I need two four tracks available, I need these. I need these microphones in this place. So they had a little diagram in, in the recording sheet, which was a form that they filled out. 
uh, and there would be a diagram, and they would show the setup of the room. I want you know, a U67 here, I want a C12 here, I want my guitar cabinet set up here, I want a, a drum screen set up here. They would make all those requests. So in general, through the entirety of the work at EMI, it was well, you know, th that sort of information was well documented. Now, when you get into a session and you're recording, then some of that goes out the window if you're, if you're well set up, you don't need to change much. But if you're following your muse, and let's say, I thought when I started this that I wanted to record the Steinway grand piano, but now that I'm into it, I want to use that Challen tack piano <laughs> on, on the track, and the Challen's not set up, what do you do? Well, you grab a microphone and you throw it in front of the challenge. Yeah. And typically in the case of the Beatles, that was an AKG D19C, just kind of a workhorse dynamic microphone. It would just get, you know, it was plugged in, it's available, you grab it and you throw it in front of the sound source and you record it. So so that's how, thing, that's how things go. Um, uh, in general, we know uh, from the tape logs, that Barrett generated, uh, notes on the tape boxes themselves, recording sheets that uh, Lewison had access to and, and did some documentation of. Um, we, we know a lot of what went into the majority of the Beatles sessions up through uh, Let It Be. And, and where it starts to fall apart is whenever they were at another studio, there was gonna be a different method that that studio used. Um, either to count tracks uh, or count takes um, or or just just the simplest thing um, and that what started to happen in those cases uh, more reflects modern recording where you're lucky if you get on a modern multi-track you open up the box you know of two inch tape and there's a um, a track sheet that just says you know bass drums <laughs> drums 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 you know guitar guitar that's all you know that's all you get um in the in the boutique studios that they use trident and olympic uh that was more the case like everything coming out of olymp out of uh, trident if it was a finished take that was take one okay so it may, it may <laughs> so, not have been take one it could have just been it's probably take 40 yeah for the beatles but that was the one that they were working on. That's take one now in the in the Trident vernacular. Whereas in EMI, they were counting everything. That's take forty on reel three. You know, they, and they would slate things on. You know, they would slate the performances. There was a talk. You know, talk back that the that the engineers at EMI they would you you you'll hear it on a number of the bootlegs out there where you'll hear Norman Smith's voice or someone's voice come on and go, come on and go. She's a woman. Take three. Yeah. Or you'll hear. This is Strawberry Fields Forever. RS three. And then the song starts. You know they were they'd slate them, so you'd know where you'd know where they are, it, which is great for reconstructing history. Ex I was about to say the exact same thing. I mean, how how <laughs> lucky are we that EMI's uh, referencing was so meticulous? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It, and it, it and it's definitely the exception to the rule. It's not the rule. It's the exception. And mercifully they did. And mercifully they did for, you know, for 
the greatest pop band ever, right? <laughs> yeah. It's uh, the amount of serendipitous things that happened uh, as a, throughout the Beatles' career and as, as sort of, you know, as we find out more and more and more about them, it's, uh, it's, it astounds me. I absolutely love it. It's, it's so interesting. No, it it is it's, it's it's endlessly interesting and and uh and i mean i'm and i'm still you know to this day you know whenever i'm i'm back listening to the recordings i'm back listening to the you know the mixes and that um there's always something new to hear there's always a, a new way to 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 open your ears to to something that uh that they were that they were doing and and um and to learn from, which you know, I I love too. I love I love what I can learn as a as a producer and as an engineer from the Beatles. To this day, I think there's I just think there's really powerful lessons from from vintage recording that I hope are not lost in uh, in the perceived ease of the digital age. I I hope that the the conversations that I'm the people I'm I'm conversing with. Are they going to hopefully be some something to challenge what you, you you've just said? You know, I, I want you know I've I've grown up in a in an era where it's really easy to do certain things, and I want to to challenge that because I've realised that there's a different way and and it's a, a beautiful way. So hopefully, this is the antidote to that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not you know I'm I'm certainly not a troglodyte. I'm you know I, I work completely in the box. Uh, uh, and I've done that for a you know a number of years, and I'm grateful for it. <laughs> you know, I'm so grateful for it. I have you know access here in Toronto to you know a lot of vintage gear and and setups and and kind of spoiled for for choice. But most of the time, I'm I'm like probably the majority of you know of of modern you know engineers and producers. I'm working in a computer. I'm working. I'm working with a. Uh, you know, a little SSL two plus IO most of the, most of the time. That's all I need, mm-hmm. and um, uh, so I don't think you need to do things the most difficult way possible to get a good result. I think it's um, what what I think the biggest difference between vintage recording and modern recording is it comes in the intentionality of the artist, and in that. Before I put anything down, I know what I'm going for. I have a picture in my head. I'm not just recording stuff and, and in, in, in the mix, I'm going to see what pasta ended up sticking to the wall. <laughs> um, I, am, I, I go into my, my work, into my song, into my session with an idea of what I want to hear. I've got, there's a, I've, I've got a vision for the song and my work is only meant to bring that vision to life, uh, they had to do it in in uh, you know back in the day. They had to do it that way. Uh, they had to they had to have a plan for the session. Um, you'll find that actually when the Beatles were without Martin, when they were kind of on their own and they didn't have the experience of being producers, that you know that's when you start getting a hundred and ten takes of not guilty. <laughs> You know, you know, just oh, come on, <laughs> uh, you know, not required. Yeah. And, and, and it's really because they, you know, they, they went in and, and all they knew about that was they were going to record a song 
and there wasn't this clear, you know, this wasn't this clear vision of what was gonna what was gonna happen with it. Um, you know, even when you know on, on like Pepper, when Lennon would give Martin, you know, this nebulous instruction of, you know, I want to smell the sawdust for <laughs> on being for the benefit of Mister Kite. That's still a direction. Yes, that's still a concept. That's still that's still something now to to accomplish is okay, well, how do I smell the sawdust? And for Martin, it was like, okay, sawdust, it's a, cir- you know, it's a circus. You know, this is, you know, so what's in a circus? Oh, we've got, you know, we've got the, it started with a calliope. And they were thinking about actually using a calliope, which if anybody knows what a real calliope is, it's the size of a pickup truck and, uh, and weighs about, uh, 2000 pounds <laughs> and, uh, and can be heard, uh, 10 city blocks away. It was meant to attract attention yeah. to the circus. <laughs> uh, you're not putting that in a recording studio. <laughs> so they, so, you know, so they faked it, but the idea was there. Like, how do we bring that calliope feel and that, um, that sort of, again, that the intention of, the picture that you want to paint when you're making your music, uh, it had to be there, and and you had to you had to have thought out pretty much in advance of what you what you want to get done before you went into a session because it was expensive. You had limited time. You were always on in, in um, even in the Beatles' case, and people think, oh, they could do whatever they wanted. Well, yeah except that they had a contract that said that they were going to deliver two albums a year up through pepper. <laughs> yes. Um, and, and four and four sides, two singles with two B sides. So, you know, for the Beatles, that meant uh, an average album, 14 tracks. That meant that they were that over the course of a year with everything else they had going on, that they were making 28 album cuts and four additional sides. So they're making, they were, they, any one year, they had to finish 32 songs. It's so think about that staggering modern image. recording artist, <laughs> you know, you know, that have a, that have a problem getting, getting out a full album's worth of work in five years anymore. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> with, uh, with respect to what we've just been discussing, did you have a favorite, era that you enjoyed researching more than the others well you know the the challenge when you get into the modern the their late era the challenge there was uh was a great one uh it was a big mountain to climb uh sorting out the work especially of the white album was really difficult and coming out the other end of that made me very happy. <laughs> um, uh, Abbey road ended up being, Abbey Road had a lot of mystery around it. Uh, the 50th anniversary, uh, and some of the notes that, uh, Kevin Hallett, uh, put out with, uh, with the deluxe edition, um, uh, helped me understand that a lot better as well that you know getting some of the mystery or a lot of the mystery out of abbey road was also very satisfying um but you know i'm like a lot of beatles fans i go back and forth i mean i get i i get super excited by their early work 
just for how raw and immediate and wonderful it is. And, you know, and then I get into Abbey Road and I hear an isolation of Billy Preston's organ work and I just, you know, inadvertently start drooling all over myself. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but as far as the, as far as the writing goes, I think, you know, great challenges are always a wonderful thing to have. It's, uh, um, so the later era recordings, the, you know, pepper on out, uh, sorting those things out, making sense of them, um, uh, and being able to explain that in a way that people can understand. I, I, I've enjoyed that a lot. I like that. In it's good. My next question was going to be, what's your most challenging, but in a way you've answered them both at once. Cause it's been your, putting the most satisfying and the, um, potentially the most challenging all at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the late recordings, um, uh, you know, sorting out, especially again, as they move to eight track, because with the, with the eight track, uh, because you can do what are called internal bounce downs, meaning I don't have to change the reel. I've got eight tracks of audio. Let's say I've filled up six of them and I know that I've got three more parts I want to record. So I'm going to run out of tape. Now I can now in those two open tracks that I've got, I can reduce some performances, but EMI engineers never noted internal bounce downs. Okay. Right. So those in particular were, were a big challenge to sort out of if you got to point X on the recording and I know that, this other work was added, uh, you know, after point X at now, what am I hearing and how, and how did the, how did those reductions come together to allow that? Like if you, if you've got, you know, again on an eight track tape, but I've got, uh, uh, four, you know, four distinct backing vocal parts that I can hear. Right. Mm -hmm. Or three distinct guitar parts that I can hear. And no one's told me that they changed. The, and I know from the tape logs that it's the same tape. Well, now I know that there was a tape reduction. So that helps me sort out the, you know, the, and, and if that, and it also tells me what order that it happened <laughs> to, under, to understand those. Cause there's only, you know, again, there's, if, if you've ever worked on tape and had to deal with these challenges, uh, there ends up only being, typically one or at most two ways that you can uh, that you can engineer a recording in order to get to the result that you hear in your headphones. So, you know, mercifully as a, you know, with, with a lifetime of recording engineering and, and producing under, under my belt, I'm able to take, to pick out signals and I'm able to follow the bass track. I'm able to follow a violin. I'm able to follow a, you know, a, a cello or a or a, a lead guitar or a rhythm guitar through an entire song. I can just hear, I can I can get myself to hear just those frequencies mm -hmm. and now follow where it goes. And when you hear them and you know that they are in you know point X in the in the session, then it tells you the way that that was recorded. The other thing that you would you'll know if you if you ever worked on analog technologies and worked on tape is that. Um, uh, the way that you use tape is different than the way you use digital. Uh, you don't need a discrete channel for everything. You just need space on the tape. So, uh, so 
the channel that holds the lead vocal, if the lead vocal doesn't doesn't overlap with the guitar solo, I'm using that channel for the guitar solo. <laughs> I'm using that same track for the guitar solo. Um, if uh, uh, if the if the the guitar solo track uh, is on its own and it's only playing in three places, I'm going to put percussion on that. And so, you know, all of those kind of understandings of how you record to tape and record with limited tracks informed the way that I sorted out how the Beatles fit everything onto an eight track or a four track or whatever it happened to be. Was there any particular standout sort of surprises that you unearthed that were a surprise perhaps not to well just to you mainly is was there anything that you that you can think of that was a all oh, right wow yeah the you know the 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 biggest one for me was uh that clapton played his solo work on while my guitar gently weeps as part of the backing track wow okay that's that's really special isn't that it blew, that blew my mind <laughs> because because when you when you read the history of it, and I talked to Ken Scott about this, um, and Ken Scott didn't remember that. Okay. Right. Yeah. So so I you know I had I had done I had tried to figure out because the solo's got ADT on it, and but it was recorded to eight track, and the eight track at the time didn't have ADT. It wasn't available, mm-hmm. so there's only a couple of technical ways that you could get artificial double tracking onto the signal. And I went over these scenarios with with Ken Scott, and I was like, "So I think that you know it happened X way." And he, you know, he looked at my rationale, and he's like, "Yeah, that's that sounds about right. That sounds about the way it happened." <laughs> well, then you know the 50th anniversary comes out, and we get, you know, and we get how it's, you know, break down and we get to hear Clapton's playing the backing track. He's doing those solos on the backing track, which made, you know, actually, and, and right there when that, you know, that was a, you know, a big whoa <laughs> moment for me. But the other thing that it was, that it reinforced was what I've always maintained. Uh, and we talked about it earlier here in, in our discussion was you never do this work the most difficult way possible. You always do this work the easiest way possible. We were talking about in relation to percussion. You know, why would I do three passes on percussion if I've got three guys that can play percussion? <laughs> I'll do one pass and get three guys to play percussion. Um, you know, if I've got Clapton in the studio, you know, who is you know, a great live player, why wouldn't I have him solo on the backing track? Why would I wait and have him solo later? We get in our heads, I think, as especially modern, you know, people that that grew up as modern engineers or modern producers, you get you compartmentalize all this stuff. But the reality is, is uh, you know, again, they were just trying to get this work done. Clapton's in the studio; he's here to play. Let's play. Billy Preston's here. Let's play. Not okay. We're going to do this backing track, and Billy, you just go to the canteen and. <laughs> And, you know, we'll see in a couple hours and then we will stand over you while you do your, you know, your organ solo. No, <laughs> that's that's not the way that they made music. They they made it the easiest way possible. So that's uh, uh, that's always the way to think about uh, about these recordings that we love, these early recordings that we love was these guys were never these. And these were you know, these were pros. 
from the engineering staff out to the musician. These guys were pros and pro pro musicians, pro engineers, pro producers. They do things the easiest way possible to get the result that they want because if they're not doing that, they're either not delivering on time or they're losing money. And it was the same case with the Beatles. So uh, I try to carry that forward today. Whenever I'm facing an engineering problem I'm facing or, or working with an artist is what's the easiest way to get this done? Not what's the most difficult or, um, uh, you know, or how do I use that synthesizer on this track? <laughs> it's like, no, you know, if, if, uh, you know, if, if, if throwing the piano through a microphone through a phase shifter will do it, I'm not going to spend an hour dialing up that same sound on a modular synthesizer. <laughs> no, I hear you. You know, not going to do it. No. So what takeaways, perhaps in your own engineering or for for what it offers uh, us, uh, other people who are working in, in the industry, what has uh, what's changed for you as a result of doing this in, in respect to the way that you record? Uh, keep it simple. Keep it immediate. Do look for do look for the easy solution. Uh, you know, start with the easy solution. Uh, you know, recording is complicated enough. <laughs> you don't need to make. You know, you don't need to impose complication upon it. It's 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 difficult enough as it is. So always look for the easy way to get what you get what you want. That's one huge takeaway. The other is always work with intention. Always, always, um, before you start recording on a song, before you start working on a song, know what you want it to sound like. Have a, you know, have a vision. Um, I think the third lesson from the Beatles is, is be prepared. And in the Beatles case, that meant be well rehearsed. Uh, you know, you should know... The only time you can really be free with any sort of of, of music and any sort of, of of work like this is that you know it backwards and forwards, and uh, the you could I I think of it in terms of, of classical music though I'm not I'm not a trained musician in any way I, everything I learned I just I just learned to play from when I was a kid um, so I don't have any any classical background at all but. You know, think of a conductor being able to say, we're going to pick up at bar 34, right? Yeah. You want to be able to do that with your own song. You want, to be able to, you want to be able to say second chorus, third verse, and know what you play there. You're, you need to, your third, third stanza, second <laughs> chorus. You're going <laughs> to, third verse. Um, uh, know your music that well. Because if you're that, if you're that, if it's that ingrained in you, you've played through it enough that it's second nature to you. That's when you can really take it to another place, uh, and 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 that's usually a really cool, you know, a really cool place. Uh, uh, so, I mean, those those are the things. Those are the things that I take out of it. Is stuff that sounds spontaneous from the Beatles. It sounds spontaneous because they just know it so well. Yeah, <laughs> that it's it's not that it's not that they haven't practiced it. It's because they it's because they know it so well. They know it so well because they have practiced it over and over and over again. And I, I encourage you if you can get your hands on the the Niagara uh, reels, 
uh, out there to take a listen to, to take, I don't encourage you to listen to all 80 CDs worth of it or whatever it is. Um, but I do encourage you just, I mean, even if there's just a website that gives you a listing of it and take a look and you'll again, see what, what I, what I mentioned earlier, where any one day at Twickenham, they might play the long and winding road 35 times. Um, you know, Maxwell silver hammer. I can tell you why that, that might've broken up the band. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, two days of 45 takes of Maxwell silver hammer. Uh, I'm, le- I'm leaving the Beatles after that. <laughs> yeah. That's madness. Um, so just uh, as we wrap up, what's uh, when's the book out? Do you, uh, presumably it's got a different release date in the U S to do in the UK. No, it'll be out at the same time uh, worldwide. Okay. Uh, looking looking for uh, the second or third week of November, if uh, if all goes well. Um, yeah, so uh, available for the holidays and <laughs> uh, and uh, for your for your holiday shopping pleasure. <laughs> well, I'm really I can't wait for it. Your contribution to uh, to sort of Beatles knowledge has is uh, really unbelievable, and it's something that I'm I'm sure you are and you should be enormously proud of. Well, thank you, Joe. I, I, I appreciate that. Um, just trying to just just trying to do work that matters, and and uh, uh, you know, hopefully, it, it helps people appreciate and enjoy the music, you know, a little bit more. Um, you know, it's it's done it for me, uh, and and uh, uh, yeah, I just love this music. I think I think you can't you can't know enough about how great music was put together. I, I have the same curiosity about a lot of great classic <laughs> recordings. It's just mercifully, I started with the Beatles so um, so I can make a living doing it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've got one final question. Is uh, So in your opinion, is George playing the uh, the Rocky Strat or the telly on the Let It Be solo? Oh, that's, a, that's a great, that's a great question. <laughs> um, you know, there's, there's a, uh, there's bootleg film of him uh, playing, playing Rocky, showing him playing Rocky, working on it as an overdub. And that solo was overdubbed, um, so I'm I'm actually very inclined to Rocky. <laughs> I, think, I think I think Rocky shows up. We all just think of Rocky in the time capsule of uh, even though you know it came in Rocky came into the world with uh, with help with the with the help recordings with that era we think of it because of magical mystery tour. We think of it just like that was the magical mystery tour guitar, but he played it through the entire balance of their career. Um, it, you know, it was always, it was all that strat was always there. So, uh, let it be solo. I'm really lean toward Rocky. <laughs> I agree with you. I think it sounds like a strat to me, to my ears. Yeah. Now, now this, again, this is something I'm very careful with because I have, I'll have people come up with me and be like, you're crazy that that was a Tennessean man. You know, that, that was easily the country gentleman. I mean, <laughs> the difference between a humbucker and a single coil is just like, you can't tell the difference. I'm, and I'm, and I, I always say, okay, humbucker through this amp dialed this way versus single coil through this amp dialed this way and we knew all of those were available and now you're going to tell me what guitar it was <laughs> you know no you're not yeah. <laughs> love it <laughs> all right i'll eat my words <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for speaking to me jerry it's been an absolute pleasure i've really enjoyed this 
Uh, I've enjoyed it too, Joe. Thank you very much. And uh, uh, yeah, thank you for the opportunity. And there we go. I really do hope that you enjoyed that conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Yeah, Jerry's such a wonderful guy and he's done such a wonderful thing archiving uh, the, the Beatles recording in the way that he has done. I strongly urge you to go to Amazon, which is what Jerry links to on his website. So uh, he doesn't seem to mind <laughs> Amazon taking their cut. Um, I strongly urge you to go and buy the book. They're, they range from sort of £25 to £30, which I think is what the new one is. I'm not sure what that equates to in dollars at the moment. But they are fantastic resources. So if you're at all interested in Beatles recording and some of those technical details, do go and check out that series of books. There's five in total. Um, I have a couple of them and they are fantastic. And I'm slowly going to add to my collection. Um, okay, so I'm very, very, very excited that the next episode I have is an interview with Malcolm Toft, who was the first recording engineer, or I think they may have even called it balance engineer, at Trident Studios back in the 60s. He is he just has a lust for life and a lust for recording. He is one of the sharpest minds, and he's incredible. So obviously he went on to build some consoles, mixing consoles that are world-renowned. The Trident consoles are all designed by Jerry... Uh, by Jerry, by Malcolm. And he's also got a whole host of other gear that he's designed. There's a new thing he's got out at the moment called Basics, um, which is a bass preamplifier that Pino Palladino is using. He also has designed 500 series equipment, 19 inch rack equipment, mixing desks, smaller mixing desks, portable mixing desks. I mean, he's just, I can't believe how much stuff he's managed to do. So he talks through his career and how he went from being interested in audio and electronics to being one of the mo world's most renowned console builders. Um, some of the artists that he's worked with. He also discusses a new course that he's got out, um, which gives advice on how to, how to record, essentially. Um, it's an amazing resource, and it's very, very, very well-priced. I will tell you more about that next episode, but it's really, really, really exciting and I am I absolutely can't wait to share it with you. Um, so that just leaves me to say, if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can do that at joe at allyouneedisdrums.com. My website is allyouneedisdrums.com. Um, you can message me there about my bespoke recording for your songs, drum recording that is. There's also an archive of lots of Beatles songs that I've re-recorded on drums to click that you can use however you see fit. Chop them up for songwriting or do whatever you want to do. Um, there is also some transcriptions on there of, of the Beatles songs that I have so far recorded. I'm slowly working my way through the whole back catalogue. Uh, of the studio recordings, that is, and maybe one day I'll get on to uh, some other bits and bobs like the live sessions. Um, so, yeah, you can do all that, and please do get in touch. I really do love hearing from you, and I love getting your suggestions. Um, okay, so I just want to say a big thank you to Joe Kane, who put together the intro and outro music for me. I really ought to get some transition music as well. That's something that's on my agenda to sort out. I'm going to speak to Joe. So, if, Joe, if you're listening to this, I'm going to speak to you. Um, and I also want to thank David Henshaw for putting together the beautiful artwork that he does for me every two weeks. So I will see you in a fortnight's time for my conversation with Malcolm Toft. Okie dokie, have a good one. Goodbye. Goodbye.